Maggie, what did you take away from your recent visit to death row? Was there something surprising or, you know, was it kind of what you expected? I mean, I think I was surprised that the person I was visiting is still in good spirits after having multiple stays of execution, being within 20 minutes of being killed by the state, um, having that last meal. The fact that he can still smile, make jokes, be excited for life still, I don't even know how to put into words the way that it made me feel. But I think it made me feel like so many of my problems on a daily basis are so insignificant. And I think that was just so... The willpower is amazing. Well, Texas is crazy. And they've tried to kill me five times. So uh, I believe that they're very serious about that. But I think with the evidence we have now, that there's no way they're going to have to let me go and they're going to have to acknowledge that I'm innocent. I don't see any other way. From Lava for Good, this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Hank Skinner. On December 31st, 1993, 31-year-old Hank Skinner was pre-gaming for a New Year's Eve party. He was with his girlfriend of seven months, 41-year-old Twyla Busby, and her two adult children, Scooter and Randy. Hank passed out before 10 p.m. from a potent combination of vodka, codeine, and Xanax. Despite his condition, Twyla left for the party without him. When she returned, she was strangled and bludgeoned to death. Her two sons were stabbed to death. Hank was the sole survivor and was instantly the prime suspect. Despite evidence that Hank was incapable of committing these murders, and that another, more probable person of interest exists, Hank has spent nearly 30 years on Texas death row awaiting execution. I'm 60 years old. I've spent my whole, the best years of my life in here, from 30 to 60. I want out of here. I shouldn't be here. I never should have been here to start with. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hank Skinner was born on April 4th, 1962. He's the oldest of four kids. I'm from Virginia, okay? I was born in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Franklin County, Virginia, which is the moonshine capital of the United States. His dad was part of the local industry. He was a foreign car mechanic as well as a moonshiner. He had three 800-gallon steam stills and fired on butane. He made the best sugar liquor you've ever drank. And see, moonshine, if it's made correctly, is a lot better than store-bought liquor. And so my dad's stuff burned clear. And I mean, it was about 140 proof. You could just get a four-ounce glass, two two ice cubes, and sip on it all. So did you just grow up drinking moonshine? Yeah, sure. When was the first time you drank it? Uh, Six years old. I stole it from my dad. Growing up, Hank felt like he had the best parents in the world. He takes pride that he was named after his dad. I'm actually a junior, but when my dad passed, I I took his name. So now I'm just Henry Skinner, Hank Skinner. Hank is a nickname for Henry. He loved Hank Williams Sr., and I love Hank Williams Jr. and Hank III. I love them all. (laughs) Yeah, I'm the same way. Hank learned a lot from his dad. Like my dad, he taught me how to slaughter hogs and slaughter cattle. And he worked for his dad, too. Young Hank was a skilled laborer and free spirit. We were just a bunch of wild, rambunctious kids having a good time. We had field keg parties and cow pastures. There was bikers up there everywhere. That's who I grew up with. But Hank also had a soft spot for the female role models in his life, like his mom and grandma. Hank grew up learning a lot from them including how to respect women. If you, want to, if you want to find out anything in life that really means something, find out from a woman. They know how to do everything. And so I can sew, I, I, I can alter clothes. I used to make dresses for my little sister on my mama's sewing machine. And I make quilts. I know how to do everything. I know how to can vegetables, you know, out of the garden. We used to do this every year. The women are the shit. That's all there is to it. You know what I mean? Hank also learned a lot about women after he married quite young. I was 19. My wife was 16. And we had just gotten married because she was already pregnant. I had a daughter, Natalie Jo. I was in, so in love with her when she was born. Natalie Jo was the light of Hank's life. But Hank's marriage to Natalie Joe's mother was another story. He and his wife struggled to get along. According to Hank, she had substance abuse issues. She was strung out on cocaine. We had a big argument and fight going on all the time. And so my daughter stayed with her mother. That was the only thing that was acceptable to her. My mama wanted her, but she wouldn't let my mama have her. And so my wife was doing crazy things when we divorced. So I just said, fuck this, I'm done. I left. And I went first to Georgia. There in Georgia, Hank worked at a casino whose high-earning customers were catered to by women. 
And these are gamblers, and they're high rollers, and so they want a woman on their arm, you know. Hank took it upon himself to look out for these women. If they get too handsy, I'm like, you know, I'm the guy who steps in and tells them, no, 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 you know, it's, you can't be doing that. And so, you ever seen that movie Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze? Because that's what I did. I was a cooler, just like he was in that movie, but not in a bar, in a, in a gambling establishment. And so I lived in an old, old ramshackle rooming house that had three stories and had a big stucco porch on the top. And so I could sit up there and drink beer and smoke weed and watch all the cars go by and holler at the girls. I was the rooster of the hen house. I had it all. In his mind, Hank was living the life. So how'd you wind up in Texas? So when I came out here, I came out here because I wanted to break out in the oil field because I heard about the oil field was a good place to make money. And I did. I made a lot of money out here. Uh, I ended up moving to Pampa. It's an oil field town. In Pampa, Hank found kindred spirits and the lifestyle he enjoyed. But soon, he was charged and convicted for unauthorized use of a motor vehicle and was on parole. He started going to AA as part of his parole, and that's where he met Twyla Busby. These two guys were picking on her. And so I dried up her tears and I talked to her and got her all right. She was just, they were just drilling. I mean, the way they were mistreated. What were they picking on her for? Uh, She's a whore. She's a sorry bitch. She drank, you know, she ain't never going to sober up. It was just horrible. So anyway, uh, I ended up giving her a ride home. On the way, Hank asked if she wanted to stop for a cup of coffee. And we sat down and started talking, and it was like, just like instantly we'd been together for 50 years. I mean, she was so easy to talk to, and and she told me, she said, I have never met anybody like you in my life. What are you, some kind of magician? And I'm like, why do you say that? And she said, I don't know. But just since I sat down and started talking to you, I just started feeling some kind of way. Twyla and Hank started spending all their time together. Twyla and I were soulmates. We could just look at each other and know what the other was thinking and what to say, you know. And whenever we went to another people's house, she always sat in my lap. People said we were like two high school kids and we were so in love. Well, she was a lot older than you, right? Ten years. That's not a lot. (laughs) Twyla had two sons. Elwin, who went by Scooter, was 22, and Randy was 20. And Hank took on the young men as his own. The three of them had even worked together in a landscaping business. Hank had a previous hand injury that left his right dominant hand virtually useless. So the boys were a big help. So I laid out the plans and showed them what to do and how to do it, and they did all the manual labor. And we made good money. Everything was going great for Twyla and Hank until seven months into their relationship, New Year's Eve 1993, when it all came crashing down. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and to making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. 
in light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. On December 31st, 1993, Hank, Twyla, and Twyla's sons were all at home preparing for their evening celebration. Although it could be a dangerous combination, Hank took some Xanax and drank the better part of a fifth of vodka. And then he accidentally started sipping Twyla's drink, not realizing that she had spiked it with codeine. That glass looked the same as mine, and I grabbed it and drank from it. And I had no idea what was in it. Hank wound up passing out that night from the combination of substances. He also says he's allergic to codeine. It makes me sick. It gives me vertigo. I can't stand up. Uh, It makes me very lethargic. Um, I lose my balance. I can't talk well. It feels like my throat is constricting, like my lungs are full of cotton. I can't get a deep breath. Do you remember feeling any of that, or were you already really drunk? I I remember feeling all of that before I passed out. Around 10.15 p.m., Hank and Twyla's friend Howard Mitchell came to pick them up to drive them to attend his New Year's Eve party. When Howard arrived, he found Hank in a practically comatose state. He tried to rouse his friend, but got no reaction. According to Howard, Hank was out cold. So he and Twyla left for the party without Hank. So, but nobody called 911 to make sure you were okay. We're all a bunch of partiers. Everybody passes out. How many times have you ever been to a party and there's three or four motherfuckers laying over there in the corner? And I've been passed out before, but not like that. At the party, Twyla encountered her uncle, Robert Donnell. He was incredibly drunk, following Twyla around and making sexual advances. They had previously had a sexual relationship, although Twyla's consent to the relationship was questionable. She had allegedly told people her uncle had raped her more than once. Twyla got uncomfortable, and Howard took her home. They arrived back sometime between 11 and 11.15. After that, what happened is not totally clear. But here's how Hank remembers it. Sometime that night, Hank says he was shaken awake by Scooter. When I first woke up, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't see where the fuck I was at. I couldn't, I I don't know, it's just hard. I couldn't think in words. And I'm seeing blood all over the walls, but I didn't recognize it as blood. I'm thinking, what in the fuck? are people slinging all over this living room. And so he got me up, and he gave me my pants, and he told me, put them on, we got to get the fuck out of here. And he was already injured at this point. Yes, and I didn't know that. Scooter had been stabbed in the chest and stomach area, but he was still managing to move around and was trying to save both of their lives. He said, he said, we got to get out of here, Hank. They're coming back. And I'm thinking, who's coming back? What in the fuck are you talking about? You remember him saying they're coming back? Yes, yes. And he was saying it in a high, strained voice. That's one of the things I remember. Scooter was a big guy, six foot six and about 225 pounds. And despite his injuries, he was able to lift Hank up and help him out. 
Was anything registering at this point? A feeling, whatever has happened, is bad. This is bad. We have got to get the fuck out of here. But I wasn't thinking in words. I was just thinking in emotions. Still unsteady on his feet, Hank started looking around. And when I did, I lost my balance and fell face forward to the floor. And so I remember looking across the floor. I got up on my elbows trying to get up, but I couldn't do it. And I remember looking across the floor, and I could see my girlfriend. And all I could see was a mass of her hair and a blood, just black tinting the edges of everything. And everything was looking alternately red and green. And I, but her, her face was gone. Twyla had been strangled and bludgeoned to death. Someone had hit her 14 times in the head with the handle of a pickaxe. When she was found, her pants were unzipped and her shirt was lifted up. As Hank was still trying to absorb everything, Scooter was pulling him to go check on his younger brother, Randy. And so we get in the bedroom and he leans me against the dresser so he can see about his brother. And I couldn't even stand up even holding on to the dresser and I fell in the floor. And this is something I remember. I don't remember falling. I don't remember trying to get up. But I remember looking up at him. And he's looking at his brother and he's got this horribly sad expression on his face. And so I know he's dead. Randy had been stabbed in the heart through his back while he was asleep. He had died on the top level of the bunk bed he shared with Scooter. That's when I realized my hand was cut. And I didn't know how it had gotten cut. But I had a a vague memory of somebody standing over top of me with a knife. And I threw my hands up and they cut my hand. It was burning. And so I didn't know if that really happened or if I was just dreaming it. Hank wasn't dreaming that his hand was cut. That was real. He and Scooter moved through the house trying to escape. But they were bleeding everywhere. And so we got out to the backyard, and we went through the gate. And I didn't know where we were going, but we had to get the fuck out of there. That's all I knew. And so um, I fell in the alley, and he told me, Hank, I can't keep picking you up. And I said, don't worry about me. Just go go get help. Go get help. And so I remember seeing him walk off towards the streetlight through the alley. Hank passed out again, so he didn't know that Scooter had made it to the neighbor's porch, where he finally succumbed to his wounds and collapsed. A neighbor found Scooter and called 911, and he was immediately brought to the hospital. There, at 12.45 a.m., Scooter died. When the police showed up and found out where Scooter lived, they immediately went to the house. When they arrived, they found a massacre. There was a trail of blood from the fence to the front porch. The front storm door was smeared with blood. Once inside, police found multiple bloody handprints on doors and doorknobs in the bedroom, kitchen, utility room, and on the door leading out to the backyard. Along with bloody handprints and blood smeared throughout the house, police also found a black plastic trash bag containing a wet brown-stained towel and a knife. They found the bloody pickaxe handle used to bludgeon Twyla, as well as a knife that was on the porch. 
They also found a man's windbreaker, and of course, the bodies of Twyla and Randy. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Almost immediately, the police started looking for Hank, the live-in boyfriend. They found him at Andrea Joyce Reed's house where Hank had gone for help after he came to consciousness. Andrea was a neighbor, and she was also Hank's ex-girlfriend. Hank became the prime suspect. The reason he was accused of the crime, I think, is because, in fact, he was the only survivor from the scene, which was both very lucky because the assailant didn't kill Hank, but it's also very unlucky because it meant all the fingers were immediately pointed at him. This is Rob Owen. I'm a lawyer. I live in Chicago. For many years, I practiced in Texas, doing mostly death penalty cases, and during that time was when I became one of the members of Hank Skinner's defense team. The police 
assumed that this was an open and shut case. They assumed that he had to be the killer. He had some of the blood of Twyla Busby and the other victims on his clothing, for example. And Hank says the blood very likely came from touching Twyla to see if she was okay. I think that was all, it was very easy for the cops to assume that they had the right guy. Hank was taken to the police station and booked, but he was still so messed up from the alcohol and codeine that he couldn't even stand on his own while his photograph was taken. The police had to hold him up. He was eventually taken to the hospital. Hank's cut hand was treated, and he voluntarily gave blood samples. Results of those samples were used to calculate Hank's blood alcohol levels at the approximate time of the murders. They showed that at the time, Hank's blood alcohol content was almost three times the drunk driving standard, and his codeine level was two and a half times the recommended dose. And so, this is Hank's alibi. Hank couldn't have committed this murder or these murders because he was simply physically incapable at the time of carrying them out. Remember, Hank was virtually comatose when Howard came to pick him up for the party. And Twyla came home from that party only about an hour later. Hank couldn't have possibly sobered up by the time the murders transpired. Hank could only have been able to sort of, at most, stand and stagger. Like that would have been about the sum of his physical ability based on the volume of alcohol and codeine in his bloodstream. Police searched the house for 10 days without a warrant, but they failed to collect key evidence, including non-bloody finger and handprints. Vaginal swabs were taken from Twyla, and despite one detective urging him to do so, Gary Stallings, the criminalist who was leading the forensics team, did not believe Twyla was raped and did not have the swabs tested. None of the evidence directly linked Hank to the crime. Yes, his bloody handprints were there, but he also lived in the house and says he was attacked. There was also DNA and at least one handprint that was not Hank's, Twyla's, Scooter's, or Randy's. But despite all of that, Hank was prosecuted for the murders. His trial began a little over a year later, in March 1995. He faced the death penalty. District Attorney John Mann was the prosecutor in the case. At trial, Mann rested his argument on two key testimonies, that of state witnesses Howard Mitchell and Andrea Joyce Reed. No actual forensics linking Hank to the crime were presented at trial. In fact, Stallings, the criminalist, conceded that just because the evidence proved Hank was there at the house does not identify him as the murderer. Howard Mitchell testified for the state and said that Hank was completely comatose when he arrived to take them to his party. But he also said that when Twyla's uncle Robert Donnell was harassing her at his house, Howard took her home and that they shared a friendly kiss on the porch. Mann used Howard's testimony to argue that Hank killed Twyla, Scooter, and Randy in a jealous rage. Andrea Joyce Reed, Hank's ex-girlfriend and neighbor, also testified. Because she came in and said, well, when he got to my house on the night of the crime, he was behaving in ways that didn't seem that messed up. He was obviously intoxicated, but he was able to walk into the house under his own steam. He was able to take off his shirt. He was able to stitch up the severe cut that he had sustained on one hand uh, using thread and needles that Andrea Reed provided him. Her testimony was a blow for the defense. Harold Comer, 
who happened to be a former prosecutor, was Hank's court-appointed defense attorney. Comer argued that Hank survived the attacks because the perpetrator didn't perceive him as a threat in his condition. He also argued that Hank's pre-existing injury had left his right hand with nerve and tissue damage. He did not have the strength to carry out these brutal murders. William T. Lowry, a forensic toxicologist for the defense, also said that it was, quote, highly improbable that Hank could have committed the murders based on how intoxicated he was. In a later affidavit, he added to his argument. He said, quote, Mr. Skinner at best would have been in a stuporous state, barely able to stand without assistance and completely without the physical coordination or mental acuity required to commit these murders by strangulation, beating, and stabbing, end quote. According to Dr. Lowry, Hank was likely exerting whatever strength and energy he had just to stand up and walk. Based on Hank's bloody handprints around the walls of the house and his inability to stand for a photo at the police station, this was likely the case. Hank's defense attorney also presented Twyla's uncle Robert Donnell as an alternate suspect, but he failed to make a strong case of reasonable doubt for Hank. And on March 18th, 1995, the jury deliberated for only two and a half hours before finding Hank guilty. Five days later, they handed him a death sentence. And I just can't believe they're doing this to me because I'm innocent. And they know, they knew I was innocent before they arrested me. The fact that a country in the Western world still executes its citizens is beyond shocking. This is Sandrine et Georges Skinner. I am French, spending half my time in Texas and half my time in France. Sandrine and Hank have been married since 2008, and Hank is anxious to get out of prison so they can be together. Because of the pandemic, they hadn't seen or heard each other for almost three years until recently. So for three years, you guys have just been writing letters? Yeah, that's correct. How did you hear about Hank and, you know, you're in France. What interested you in somebody in in Houston, Texas? Well, I had a friend in France who was a young lawyer and he uh, wrote his thesis on the death penalty in Texas. And he sent me a copy. I read it and I just fell off my chair. I couldn't believe that the... uh, legal system in the U.S. was so poor and so flawed. Um, And he told me at the time about an organization that was set up and run by the death row prisoners in Texas. And they had a a sort of a trimestral um, newsletter. And he said, you know, if you want to translate it in French, we could distribute in France and get people, you know, a bit more aware about what's going on there. And so I did a couple of times and he said, well, if you want to correspond with people there, I'm thinking of three guys I'm sure you'll get along with. And Hank was one of those three guys. That's how we started writing in 1996. Sandrine says they corresponded for about four years before she went to visit Hank on death row, a place where prisoners are confined in cells alone and do everything alone. When she met Hank on death row, that's when she felt he was more than just a pen pal. And, you know, he's very smart. He's very funny. Um, he's very strong, as you can imagine, with what he's been through. And we just clicked. 
instantly, even at a distance and in writing. And it, we clicked even more when we met. In what ways? I mean, you might think, you know, you two are worlds apart, literally. I mean, you're we are. <laughs> a woman in France and he, he he's a man on death row. Totally different culture, different background. Well, yeah, you know, kindred spirits, I guess, know no borders. So you guys have never been able to be intimate in any kind of way. You've never even touched his hand. No, never. What is that like? It's, um, well, I'm not a masochist, but honestly, it is a torture. <laughs> it is a torture. It really is a torture. Because you look sometimes, uh, you know, when you, even with your friends, I mean, I don't know here in the U.S., but in France, we are very uh, feely touchy. We need to be close. We kiss, we hug. So you know someone's uh, scent, their skin, you know, you know a lot of things. So uh, basically our sensorial memories of each other's are the sound of our voices and our eyes and the look in our eyes. Uh, and not knowing his skin, not being able to comfort him is very, very hard. Through the years, Sandrine has flown back and forth between France and Houston to visit Hank on death row. Although she was not originally involved in Hank's innocence claim, Sandrine eventually became convinced of his innocence. And I read tons and tons of paperwork. And, and to me, it was obvious. I mean, physically, scientifically, for a number of reasons, it was very clear that he was innocent. And indeed, the one key witness that Hank's fate rested on, Andrea Joyce Reed, recanted her statement. Here's Rob Owen again. After Hank was convicted and sent to death row, Andrea Reed contacted Hank's lawyers and said, that testimony wasn't true. Uh, I was really afraid because I thought I was likely to be accused of being some sort of accomplice or having assisted Hank in some way that would put me into legal jeopardy. She was at the time trying to regain custody of a child, and she thought that that would certainly be uh, unlikely if the if the authorities were angry at her or believed she had some role in this crime. So she she essentially went to trial and exaggerated systemically and repeatedly uh, the things that Hank was able to do. What she said in her recantation was, in fact, Hank was not able to get into the house on his own. She had to go outside, basically drag him up the steps and into the house. But when she recanted, prosecutor man was not pleased. John Mann uh, dragged Andrea Reed before a grand jury after she gave her affidavit recanting her trial testimony and threatened to prosecute her for perjury if she persisted. And to her great credit, she, she did not back away from the recantation. And she said, I, I don't want false testimony on my conscience. And so I'm going to stick now telling the truth, no matter what the consequences for me personally are. But I think that says a lot about Mr. Mann that he was willing to threaten to prosecute her in order to keep her truth from coming out. Hank filed multiple appeals, one based on Andrea's recantation, but clearly none were sufficient for the court to free him. He was only met with execution dates. Sandrine and Hank kept up their relationship for nearly 15 years before Hank got another execution date in March 2010. This time, it was serious. He was transferred to one of the cells near the death chamber in Huntsville, Texas. They killed my first friend March the 2nd. They killed my second friend March the 11th. And they were going to kill me March 24th, 13 days later. What, did that, what is that like when you, when you know you're going to die? It's indescribable. 
The last seven days, you don't sleep at all. You're hypervigilant. Your mind starts unrolling. All of the things you've done in your life that you wish you hadn't done, the things you could have done better. I'm sitting there looking at that gurney that they're fixing to put me on. I could see it through the door. They had the door open. I could see the microphone. I could see the straps, the arm bars. And I was absolutely convinced I was fixing to die. I just, I just knew that I was going to die because the courts had just give me the short shrift every time we had filed something like, fuck you, fuck you, die, die. And so uh, I felt like that was it. Did you get a last meal? Yes, I did. What was it? Uh, Popeye's fried chicken, uh, a cheese, a double cheeseburger with onions and uh, uh, tomatoes, no lettuce, and uh, uh, chocolate pudding, chocolate cake, and a chocolate milkshake. And I ate every bit of it. Fortunately, Hank's execution was stayed by the U.S. Supreme Court less than an hour before he was set to be killed. Today, Hank spends his time as a jailhouse attorney, helping other prisoners with the law and their cases. And although he's in solitary on death row, incarcerated people do have a right to provide legal help to one another. So that's really his only social interactions. Hank has maintained his innocence for nearly 30 years. To this day, he believes he was framed by Twyla's uncle, Bob Donnell. And at one of Hank's later hearings, Donnell's longtime neighbor, Deborah Ellis, testified that she saw Donnell in his yard a few days after the murders took place. He was giving a frenzied cleaning to his old beat-up pickup truck, taking out the seats, throwing away the carpet, and scrubbing the floorboards with an astringent cleaner. Ellis found his behavior strange because Robert reportedly rarely cleaned his truck. Hank's theory is that after Twyla left the party with Howard, Donnell followed them home. When Howard Mitchell testified at trial, he said that when he returned to the party, Donnell was gone. Hank thinks he left to confront Twyla at home. And when he saw Hank passed out, he left him as the sole survivor, knowing how that would look. And if you remember, there was a men's windbreaker jacket that was taken as evidence. However, it was never tested. Clearly has potential evidentiary value. It's got blood spatter on the sleeves. It's got sweat stains on the collar. It's got hairs on the interior lining. Over the years, Rob and Hank's team have tried to test all the evidence they could, but it was only once we got into court that the state came in and said, oh, well, uh, we don't know what happened to the jacket. The jacket is uh, lost. And it, it's also a little weird that it's the only piece of evidence that they say is lost, right? They had all the other evidence in the scene. They've got the blood swabs. They've got the knives. They've got fingernail clippings. They've got hairs. But somehow they managed to lose an object as large as a man's windbreaker jacket. So I'm not going to vouch for their uh, claim to have lost this jacket. I, I think they should still be looking for this jacket. DNA testing that was able to be done on the items from the crime scene has been completed. None of the results have implicated Hank as the murderer. However, the courts ruled that even if the DNA testing and results had been available at the time of trial, it's not reasonably probable that the jury would have found him not guilty, meaning the judge who decided the verdict would have reached the same conclusion. Hank has appealed this to the Texas highest criminal court. It's currently pending a decision. 
When I met with Hank at the Polanski death row unit, I asked him. Do you wish you were killed that night instead of winding up here? There have been times when I wish that because, especially in the first days after this happened and I was in jail cell by myself, it would have been so much better. You know what I mean? And uh, I, I just could not b believe that they were gone. I mean, the three people I love most in this world, her sons were my best friends. We spent all our time together. And so uh, to, to wake up one morning and they're just all gone. And I, you know, survivor's guilt. I didn't do this. There's nothing in the world that could have made me do it. But I felt so responsible because I was the king of that castle. And instead of passed out drunk on the fucking couch, I should have been awake and able to do something. Can you envision a life outside of here? Sure. What does that look like? I'm going to be with Sandrine. Do you think you'll go to France? Uh, absolutely. You're going to get out of here? Oh, I, I'm out of this country. They let me out of here. I'm so out of here. It ain't funny. Do you think you're going to get out? <sighs> well, Texas is crazy. And they've tried to kill me five times. So. Uh, I believe that they're very serious about that. But I think with the evidence we have now, that there's no way they, they're going to have to let me go and they're going to have to acknowledge that I'm innocent. I don't see any other way. You know, I, I think uh, after all I've suffered, that I, I deserve a chance. I deserve to be with my wife. I deserve to have a life. I deserve to be released and get the hell out of here. And I want out. I'm telling you something. You know, it was just so amazing to find love a second time. And I love her endlessly, man. And I mean, we are really, truly soulmates. Hank is still eligible for execution, but he will not get a new date as long as litigation is pending. If you want to help Hank, you can go to justiceforhank.org forward slash help. Next time on Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling, Carla Bidet. They were telling me that I abuse kids. It was painful because I love these kids so much. She's thinking that you abuse a, somebody so innocent. And then they were saying that I did that. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis, as well as our senior producer, Annie Chelsea, researcher Lila Robinson, story editor Sonia Paul, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. 
Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrongful Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number no. 1. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.